Corinthians. Moving through this book on Wednesday nights, we saw in the end of chapter 2, Paul was kind of, and in this whole book, he's sort of stuck defending himself a little bit. He's been attacked a lot. People are saying things about him and questioning his calling and questioning his leadership and all. And so he, um, in dealing with all of that, he was just talking about how Satan rips people off by pulling them away, causing them to turn on uh, Paul and others, and thus being shipwrecked themselves. But he said that we are a sweet aroma. We are, we are to have the fragrance that we, the gospel just shines forth from our lives, that the way we live our life just feels right, and it just smells good. It smells authentic to people around us. And so, you know, he finally wraps up the chapter by saying, and by the way, I'm not peddling the word of God, but this is sincerity as from God we speak in the sight of God and in Christ. He said, there are, the implication is there are some people out there who are hustling the gospel in order to profit for themselves, but he said, I'm not doing that. I'm sincere. I'm just telling you the truth, and that's what I've always done. And then now in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? In other words, do I really need to talk about myself to defend myself um, to you? Pastor Chuck used to always say that if you want to defend yourself, then God will let you. But if you don't defend yourself, then God will defend you. And I, I'm tempted to defend myself so many times. You know, you get someone's attacking you, they're saying things to you, they're saying things about you. And yet, I've, I'm trying to learn to just let God have it. To not be, if you're going to defend yourself, you're going to be constantly defending yourself. Um, it sort of invites the worst kind of people to attack you because it feeds their need that they have to get attention and, and it gives them some sort of interaction. And some people, the only kind of conversations they know how to have are adversarial ones. But Paul's attitude was, do I really need to even do this? Do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Apparently, there were people in those days who, and in these days too, felt like they needed paperwork. They needed to document what was going on. Or, you know, they, they would get a paper from somebody else saying, yeah, or they would sign a petition. They would say, here's what we think, and... And they would have a letter of recommendation from someone to show, see, they're on my side. And it was this whole um, game that was played all in the name of winning something, winning an argument or whatever, words going on and on. Um, it's like nowadays when you get served with legal paperwork and it's just a stack of stuff and you're like, what is all this about? And Paul's saying, do I really need to do that with you? Do I need to get other people to agree with me? Do I need to have some sort of letter that will say, 
you're wrong and I'm right. But he said, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. He says, the only letter of recommendation I need is your own heart. And he says, you're written on my heart, and I've touched yours. In other words, you guys know what our relationship was at one point. There's a reason why you continued to listen to my teaching. There's a reason why you came to Christ and then wanted to be a part of the church. There was a connection between us. You, you heard what I had to say, and, and as we're going to see from the rest of the chapter, the point was you understood grace. Now, many of them understood the law beforehand and, and knew all about that. But it's always really special when you learn grace, when it begins to sink in that it's all about what Jesus has done. It's not about what you need to do. And so for many of them, they had no doubt tried to discipline themselves and to be good people, and they felt bad about where they were bad, and that's, that's easy. But when someone can share with you in the grace of God, and it's a give and take, it's a mutual thing, by the way, because when you share with someone about God's grace and you see the eyes light up, when you see the response or you hear back from them how this is really making a difference. This, I never thought about it that way before. I, I'm, I'm blown away by God's goodness. I'm blown away by the freedom that I have in Him. When that happens, it has as much of an impact on the person who is sharing as it does on the people with whom you're sharing. And we see this happen all the time in our relationships. There are some people who the way they respond and the way they react toward me, it just makes me feel grace. I just, you know, there, we always in this life tend to have our guards up. Because there are a whole lot of people in this world that will not give you grace. And so you kind of learn to expect problems. You learn to expect that people are going to complain and gripe. That people are going to judge you. That becomes the norm, unfortunately. But every once in a while, someone surprises you with grace. And it just relieves you. It takes the burden from you. It... It, it, it allows you to experience God's grace in a way that wasn't usual, that wasn't ordinary. And certainly with Paul and these people, as he began to unfold to them the teachings of grace, the nature of the gospel, the good news, then um, it did something to them, which then did something to him too. You can tell how much he loves these people. Now, when they messed up, he came down hard on them. The book of 1 Corinthians is just as, as tough 
love as you could possibly have. And grace doesn't mean you can't have tough love, but it always means that you've established a heart whereby, listen, I have shown God's grace to you, and I'm telling you what grace is. And ultimately, the bottom line, when it's all over, when it's all said and done, it's grace that I desire. It's what motivates me, and it's what causes me to want to share with you. Now, even as tonight some people shared times when they experienced God's love, um, we could go around the room and easily talk about times when God's grace was manifest to you. When it just clicked, it hit, it was like, wow, this is free? Wow, this is, I don't have to earn it? You mean, you're not condemning me? You're not telling me that I'm not good enough to be God's child? Instead, you're, you're, you're welcoming me with his grace? That's amazing. That's, you know, just life-changing. And we've made various connections with people based on that in our lives if we're Christians. And, and sometimes over time, you might drift away from those people. Sometimes over time, you move, you're at a different church, or you used to listen to somebody's teaching, but you're kind of, eh, you know, it's not as great as it used to be, or you're over it. Um, there are friends who just kind of drift off and head in different directions. We have a very mobile uh, society and all. But if we think back to how we learned grace... It's so important to remember those connections because those moments of connection, even though, and, and there are plenty of times when a person who taught you about grace ends up letting you down or failing you in some way, that's life. You get to know anybody too long and too well, and you're going to be disappointed in them because they're only human. But it's important for us to remember as Paul was stressing here with them. We had that grace connection. You are a part of my heart and you will be forever. Man, I'm really bugged at you. I, I can't believe some of the things that I'm hearing that happened to you, but you're written in my heart. And I think if you dig down deep inside, I'm written in yours too. I've had that input to you. I've You've grown as I've shared with you. And as a result, he's just saying, do we really need to argue about this? Do I really need to prove myself to you? Is, it, is there a question in your mind as to whether what we experienced was real? I've found a lot of times that people are in different churches for a period of time and then God maybe leads them on to go somewhere else. And I don't, you know, a lot of times pastors will get up and really harp against that. But, I mean, it's, I'm totally fine with that. You know, if there's ever a time when you feel that God wants you somewhere else, I would always want you to feel that you could go somewhere else. Um, but just don't forget those people in your life who ministered grace to you when you needed it. A lot of times when... God's leading us on, we tend to turn on people and distort our memories of them because emotionally it's easier to convince yourself that that person was actually a jerk always rather than to convince yourself that, well, they're a mixed bag. I received a lot of blessing from them, but 
they've also let me down at different times, and right now it's best if I don't hang with them. But it's one of the awful things that happens sometimes when people get divorced is they completely blank out of their mind any good times that were there, and they just say, I was never happy, I was always miserable, because it's just easier to deal with it that way. But when it comes to God, we need to recognize that there are people that he has used at different times to bless us, to show grace to us, to minister to us, and we shouldn't distort history in order to make living with the present easier to do. And so Paul's kind of appealing to that and calling them to think back. Now, some of those people who used to be big fans of Paul now weren't. Even in 1 Corinthians we see there were some of them who were going, you know, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. So he had lost some of his fans. But he's saying to all of them, you know what, I don't have anything to prove to you guys. I was honest with you, as he said in the end of the previous chapter. I shared God's grace with you, and I saw it affect your life. And if you think back, you'll recognize that. So accept it for what it is. Paul's not asking for anything from them. He's just saying, you know that I ministered to you. You know that I was there for you. You know I made a difference in your life. Um, there are people who've made a huge difference in my life that I choose not to be involved with right now, but I should always be thankful for what they did in my life, for how God used them to be a blessing to me at different times. It's just a healthier perspective. And so he, I, I, I think it's good for us every once in a while to look back and to think, who were all the people who contributed to me understanding the grace of God as I understand it today. And for most people, it's not just going to be one person. It's probably a series of people. It's probably some people that you heard on the radio. There was input from people in your family. There were different pastors at <coughs> churches that you've been to. There are some books that you've read. There are friends that you've had. And I like Paul's imagery, that when someone touches us, they are engraved in our heart and we are engraved in their hearts. There's a special connection, a special touch. And so he's appealing to that to sort of diffuse the situation also of them wanting to accuse him and him needing to defend himself. He's calling them back to earlier times and just saying, Remember how, how much we meant to each other? Remember why we were friends in the first place? Remember how you came to Christ? The role that I had in that? You remember when the light started clicking on as I was teaching? He said, you're still there in my heart. And, and I'm still there in your heart, whether you realize it or not. And then he goes on and begins to use the law the Old Covenant and the New Covenant as a metaphor for all of this. He says in verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. I, I trust that that's going to happen. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. 
He goes, look, I, I'm not saying I was so great. I'm not saying that I was so perfect. I've already said I was, I'm the chief of sinners. But what I'm saying is God worked through me, and I know that. I saw God working in your life. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He says it was God that did the work in your life, but it was also God who enabled me to minister to you in a way that you understood. And so it wasn't just God coming to you. God used me, and don't forget that. And now he uses this thing, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The law in the Old Testament was given simply to show people that they were in trouble, to show people that they couldn't save themselves. I mean, you put up all the commandments that the law included, and the, the logical response in hearing it would have been to go, how in the world are we ever going to do all this stuff? This is impossible. Children of Israel were sort of naive, and so when Moses read the law, they said of one accord, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Later, God told them, well, that was a good thing to say, but you haven't done it, obviously, because the point of the law was to bring a person to an awareness of their sin. Still the point of the law. To this day, you can't have God work in your life until you realize that you need him. And so to the extent that we come to understand that we're messed up and can't do this on our own, there's still a need for that law. But the law was not demonstrating the real heart of God. And it wasn't demonstrating what the spirit of it was. Because what you can't see in the law, and many Jews have never come to understand, is that God only wanted to convict so that he could save and forgive. That was his heart. That was his desire. That was the whole point in him doing what he did. And it's all by grace. It's not by works. It's not by us being good at all. And so he sets up this little statement, and now he's going to go into more detail about it. But you probably often hear this, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Well, this is the text that it comes from. Because even if you follow the rules, but if in your heart your relationship with God isn't there and you don't understand what he's trying to do, <coughs> then following the rules doesn't do you any good if you miss the heart of God. It's why when Jesus talked about the law, he applied it in such a different way, such a radical way from the way everyone else did. I mean, you see things like the Sabbath laws. And Jesus and his disciples were walking through the field. They were picking food and eating it on the Sabbath day. And they called him on it. And they said, you guys are violating the Sabbath because they took a real strict, literal interpretation of the law and said, you can't work on the Sabbath, therefore you can't even pick off a little piece of fruit or something and eat it on the Sabbath day. But Jesus told them, look, you got to understand the point of the law, the point of the Sabbath was for the benefit of people. He said, understand this, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath 
was made for man. Now, in a bunch of other cases, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 and 6, he talked about what their traditional interpretation of the law said, as opposed to, in the spirit of the law, sometimes it was way stricter. He said, well, you guys say that, you know, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you're going and lusting after people that you're not married to, you're guilty of the same kind of sin. See, all of that was to try to say, there's a point to the law. Don't get the law and miss the point. And, of course, he was often upbraiding the Pharisees because they were so focused on the law and they so missed the point of the law to an extent that they would criticize him because he would heal someone on the Sabbath day. And they thought it's better to leave somebody crippled and not violate the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, do do you not understand God at all? Do you, You don't understand the heart of God? Anytime you interpret the law in a way that disregards concern for people, you're missing the point. And believe me, there are plenty of Pharisees around still who would have some rule and then completely, with no common sense at all, in applying that rule, would just rigidly adhere to it and think that somehow they're being good. Paul said, what I taught you guys, and what it's so important that you need to understand is there's a spirit behind the law. There's a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so anytime you disregard the Spirit and then obey the letter, the letter of the law is what kills, he's going to go ahead and say. Because the law could only bring death. But what the Spirit does is bring life, brings the solution. So he says in verse 7, well, here... The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's so important. It's so important. He made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The new covenant is first referred to over in Jeremiah 31, 31, and thereabouts, several verses, where God promises that one day you'll have a law, it's a new covenant, not engraved on stones, but it's the law will be engraved on your heart. That is, the Holy Spirit will be inside you, and you can listen to him rather than listening to those who want to interpret the law for you. The glory of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit inside, where you don't have to parse out all of the particular technicalities of the law. That's a sad way to live. And frankly, that's the way an awful lot of Christians live. Still thinking, letter of the law, I've got to find out, I've got to... And even though they say, this totally doesn't make sense to, tell, to give this person this advice, I can't find a way around it because it seems to be saying this, and my strict interpretation is dictating this. And even though I go, I know this wouldn't be the heart of God, but I've got to stick with the rules. <laughs> and... The whole point of the New Covenant is, no, you're not going to have to go through that, those gyrations. You, you allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. You let the Spirit work in your life, 
and he's going to give you the desires of your heart. He's going to work in you, and you just, you'll be able to, if you're filled with the Spirit, just follow what the Spirit is leading you to do, and there's this amazing freedom that comes from not having to break down every step that you take and make sure that it's technically correct. That'll kill you. The Spirit gives life. And any proper relationship with God is going to give you life. Jesus said, I came that you would have life, and that more abundantly. And so you can very easily tell in your own life and in the life of someone else, is is this a person who is life-giving? Am I a person who really is alive? Or am I a buzzkill for everyone? Am I just a, do I make everyone depressed as soon as I walk in the room? Do I have that effect? Chances are, if you think that everyone frowns all the time, maybe it's when you walk up <laughs> that's having that result. But the letter is what kills. The Spirit is what gives life. Now, he goes on to say, but if the ministry of death, that is the law, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Okay, when, when Moses received the tablets of the law engraved on stone by the finger of God, it was glorious. In fact, Moses, from being close to God, was glowing, and he had to wear a bag on his head for a while because it was just too hard for people to look at. So again, Paul would never say that the law was bad. He said, no, the law was glorious. It made sure lit Moses up, and it was really important. But why was it glorious? The glory of the law was that the people were completely messed up, and they needed to realize that they needed God. And to this day still, there's a certain glory to the law because at least if it brings you to the point where you realize how messed up you are and how much you need God. But he says, there was that glory to that, but how will the ministry of the Spirit, verse 8, not be more glorious? It's nice to know that you have a problem. And a person who comes and tells you that you have a problem is doing you a favor. But how much better when someone comes along and provides the solution? Says, I, I can fix that. How many of you would go to a doctor if the doctor would just tell you what's wrong, but they didn't ever prescribe medicine or give you treatment or offer to try to help you. Some of you know how frustrating that is because you may have a condition that they diagnose, but they don't really have anything that they can do for you. And there's nothing more frustrating than that. It's like I almost would rather just speculate as to what it is than to give a name to my condition, but not a remedy. That's hard. It's really painful for people to, to know that they have something that's not going to get better, but here's what you call it. And now all your friends can Google it and tell you all the wacky things that are supposed to help because doctors don't know how to help you. But if somebody can tell you what's wrong, which is a blessing, that's a step, but they can also tell you how to fix it. There's an easy fix for that. 
then that's more glorious. And see, that's what the gospel does. The law comes in and says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the gospel comes in and says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So yeah, if you're dying, if you're, if you're killing yourself, it's helpful if somebody points that out. A lot of people don't even want to hear that they're doing anything wrong. Some people think they make no mistakes. But a, a, an intelligent person will be glad when someone points out their mistakes. But then, if somebody can also say, and he, you know, God, I get it. You're right, I'm doing this. And then they go, well, here's how you fix it. That's what the new covenant does. That's what the gospel does. And so he says, that's way more, way more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, verse 9, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. In other words, you can't even compare the glory of the law with the glory of grace. For if what is passing away was glorious... You know, that glory that Moses had was fading away. He finally got to take the bag off his head. What remains is much more glorious. And, and there is a certain glory to the law. And as we, as we saw when we were talking about Nehemiah, when he said, you know, celebrate because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeah, when you realize what your problem is, that's cause for rejoicing. But over time, that rejoicing fades. You know, eventually, you need to see change. You need to see that you can beat this thing in order for it to really come into the fullness of joy. For if, that, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. He said... Because of the glory of the truth of the gospel, I can be really bold to you. I don't have to hold back. If you're messing up, I can tell you directly and clearly <coughs> because I also can pronounce to you forgiveness. I can also tell you that God makes you clean, that he gives you a fresh start. And so he says, that's why I can be so bold, because the hope. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He said, I don't have to hide the glory of the gospel. Moses had to hide it because, and it seemed like one reason is, if people were looking at his glow, they would watch it begin to fade away. And once their eyes got accustomed to it, it seems like, oh no, now it's leaving. And so it was great, but it didn't last. He had to cover it up with a bag because they weren't going to get used to it. But he said, I can just shoot straight with you because I have the gospel, I have the truth, I have that grace of God. But their minds, verse 14, were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, 
because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So he says, even today, even though Jesus has died and rose from the dead, there are a lot of people who are walking around with a bag over their head. They're in denial. They don't understand. They're, they're arguing and fighting and defending themselves when all they have to do is admit their sin and they'll be forgiven. God's offering that. He's giving them that opportunity. But he said some of them, even when they look at the Old Testament, they can't really see what it's all about. They can't see the, the glory of grace. I mean, yes, the Old Testament doesn't give a clear delineation, ultimately, of the full gospel until Jesus came. Then you look back, and there's clues everywhere. I mean, after Jesus came, Isaiah 53 took on a whole new meaning that we've all gone astray, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. And the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He died so that people could live. Looking back for us, when we look at the Old Testament, we go, how glorious. Because I can see Jesus on almost every page. Every, every time, you know, I can't, understand a passage when i inject jesus into it it starts making sense it's all about him that's why when jesus met those two disciples on the road to emmaus after his resurrection um, he began to talk to them and after he left they said well before that it said he took them through the whole bible and showed them how it was about him and then when he disappeared, they said, man, how our hearts burned within us when he opened the scripture to us. You never truly open the scripture until you show this is Jesus. See where he fits in. Man, I would have loved to have heard that message where he went through the whole law and the prophets and he showed how it was all about him. But because we have this knowledge of Jesus, we can go back and look at the Old Testament and see Jesus. But if you reject God's grace, if you reject the gospel, as so many Jews do today, they're still, they've got a veil. They still can't see the obvious because they don't want to accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. As a result, now they're still confused and they, they read it. You know, prior to Jesus coming, Isaiah 53, among the rabbis, was always considered to be about the Messiah coming. Now, and even for several hundred years after Jesus, a lot of Jews were still thinking that it's about the Messiah, just not about Jesus. But ultimately, the more the Christians got excited about the passage, then rabbis began to come up with twisted interpretations of it where they would say, oh, this is about the nation of Israel suffering because they just didn't want to see the truth. And so Paul says, sadly, even though the veil is down, they still, you know, there's no reason why you can't see forgiveness and completion and truth, but they still choose to have the veil. The temple 
after, you know, when Jesus died, three o'clock in the afternoon, the sky went dark, and the veil of the temple, that thick, multi-layered skin curtain that kept people out of the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, that thing was ripped. I mean, it's not like a little piece of fabric. It was multiple inches thick, and it was ripped in half from the top to the bottom. No person could do it. Someone who's above it tore it from the top and ripped it down. Sadly, temple worship continued in that temple until 70 A.D. What that means is someone sewed the veil back up. It was torn, but they fixed it. They again blocked the way to God. Now, it's hard to figure that out, but something that's even harder to figure out is why there are Christians who have accepted Jesus Christ, who've tasted of that grace, who, who could all quote to you Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet, they continue to live life legalistically. They continue to not be free, to not experience that love of God that sets us free, that wonderful, amazing grace of God. They just miss it. Or they revert back to it. You know, it's funny. As people get older sometimes, they tend to revert back to their old ways. And, and they lose sight of that grace that they once knew and that, they, that once was the driving force of their life. And in the same way, as he says, you don't need a veil. So why are you making one all the time? You know, you recognize that the Old Testament law couldn't save anybody. So why are you making up a New Testament law? Why, why do you want to still be under the law? To those people like the um, various uh, sects that, that teach uh, Sabbatarianism, that, like the Seventh-day Adventists and the Seventh-day Baptists and different ones, who, who want to still be under the law, you look at this passage and go, why in the world would you want to put a veil over you when it's been torn in half? What do you want to be under the law for? Why do you want to live life under a bunch of artificial restrictions and to be scared to death that you're going to make the wrong move? Why do you want to live your life that way? There's a, there's a better way to live life than just doing what you have to do grudgingly. The veil is gone, and yet, he said, people are still using it. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. To come to the Lord, to have your sins forgiven, to have the Holy Spirit come into your life, as he is in every Christian, everyone who's ever regenerated, the Holy Spirit has given you as a seal, as a guarantee of what God is going to do. And then as you begin to walk with the Lord and you allow the Spirit to fill your life, he wants to set you free. 
It's about liberty. It's about allowing him to run things. No longer being under an artificial structure. No longer living your life whereby you're constantly afraid that you're breaking some rule or you're constantly scared of not pleasing someone or of you know not measuring up. But the gospel sets you free. And that's what he says. That's what Christianity is. That's the whole point of it. And you can look at your level of freedom and determine whether or not you really understand the gospel. Now, there are people who are scared to death of that. The teaching that you're free. The teaching that he gives liberty. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, a lot of times our first thought is, you mean I can do anything and God will just forgive me just like that? What's the truth to that? Yes. That's what the Bible teaches, clearly. That's why Jesus died, so that would be the case. Now, our next thing is, well, if you tell people that, they're just going to go crazy. They're going to think that they can do anything they want to do. And as a result, you go, you've got to give them some law. But what makes you think that other people are going to do something that you don't do? or that you don't want to do? And what makes you think that God's grace isn't really going to change people's lives? To teach Christian legalism, to make people afraid that they're going to mess up somewhere, that they just have to constantly live by a rule book and everything, to do that is to say, I don't trust the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does, And I think that when people understand that they're free, I think they're going to turn their back on God. Is that what it does to you when you're overwhelmed with God's goodness? When you're you're just consumed by his amazing grace, when he's forgiven you so freely, does it really want to make you go mess up again? Hey, Jesus, let's see you forgive me of this one. And when he does that, go, oh, I can do worse. What can I do that's so bad that will really bring out his grace? Of course not. Of course not. If you're living a life of sin, if you're just living a life that's out of control, you don't understand his grace. You need it. I would appeal to you to turn to it. But grace will always make a difference in your life. In fact, it's the only thing that will. The law can make you better for a short time. But it'll never keep its momentum. And what the law will do eventually is, you'll just start faking it. Because you you try to be good, you do good for a while, but it starts slipping. And people start noticing. And you're afraid. You don't want people to know who you really are. And so you begin to fake it. You start to pretend to be godly, pretend to be spiritual. It's why so often the people who are screaming at other people about their sin the loudest are sometimes some of those who are hiding some of the greatest offenses personally. They haven't haven't dealt with some major problems in their own life. I 
you know, who can forget the um, famous evangelist who was when Jim Baker and his sin became public, this other um, evangelist came out and, and said that, that Jim Baker was just a wart on the face of God and, all, and, and said worse than that, tried to actually take over his ministry at one point and was just blasting Jim Baker. When Jim Baker's crying and saying he's repentant and, you know, I, I can't judge somebody else's heart. But ironically, it was within a month or two of that happening that this other evangelist was caught um, cheating, you know, with a prostitute. And it's like, you were, they had clips of him just screaming at how disgusting Jim Baker was, judging him. And then this guy went on TV and cried and totally repented. It was one of the best repentance things I've ever seen and got caught with a prostitute about a month later. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Because somebody lives a fake life instead of a real one. And I don't always fault the people who are living lives of hypocrisy. Because frankly, in a lot of ways, the church is begging for that. We're not a place where forgiveness is something that we want to talk about. The law preaches much better than grace does sometimes. You can make people, because every one of us can be made to feel guilty. And that works. And guilty people tithe. People who believe in the law, they think they have to give a certain amount. And they even give more if they want to pay for the, their secret sins that they're dealing with. But that is not the gospel. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The gospel is about setting people free. It's about realizing that you can't even think of a sin that Jesus didn't die for. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. <clears throat> and if you're continuing to live in sin, what does John say in 1 John? If, if the direction of your life is walking in darkness, you don't know God. You don't. And so what do you need to do? You need to get to know Him. As John said in 1 John 1, Confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not foolproof. There are some people that you can just share with them about grace and they will continue to walk in darkness. They just don't get it. But the only thing, the only hope for lives being changed permanently is the grace of God. That's the only message we have that will change people. And I could get up here every week and make a list of all the sins that you ought to feel terrible about, and you'd go away from here feeling terrible, and some of you would try to change, but it will not change you. No one changes that way permanently. You know, when people go to prison, we try to reform them. And we f figure if we educate them, they'll get better. But really what generally happens is after people go to prison, they graduate from prison much smarter criminals. They know a lot more. 
It's only grace that can ultimately really turn our lives around. And it's not perfect, in a sense, because there are some people who are just never going to get it. It's like some people, some people can be legalists and think they're really good. Most people who are legalists deep down inside feel that they're really bad and they're covering it up. They judge other people hoping that they can lower other people to their level. But it's only when we completely understand grace that our lives can change for real. And it works. Anyone whose life has really changed, it was because of grace and grace alone. Um, the law is tempting. Whenever I see people doing foolish things, I'm tempted to lay down the law. But grace is the only thing that can change people's lives. It's all we got. Paul often said that's the only message he knew. And so in verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, we're looking at it for real, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory or greater glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. A couple different interpretations as to exactly what this is referring to, what we're looking at, what we're beholding. It would certainly seem that Paul's talking about when we really look at the gospel, look at the good news. But he's using this imagery of a mirror and a reflection and I really think it wraps up the thought from where he started. And that is, as he was talking about reflecting back on our hearts being touched by each other as we share in the grace of God, and now he's saying, take a look in the mirror. Look what God is doing in your life. Look at the impact that the gospel, the truth of the gospel, has had in your life. And sometimes it's helpful for us to think back to where we were before we understood the gospel. And now look at how we've grown. Look at what God has done. And so he says, when we look at the reflection of the gospel as it comes off in the mirror in our own lives, we see what God's done in our lives, that has a transforming effect. And we're changed from glory to glory. There was, a, there was a certain glory in the law. There's a greater glory in grace. And there's an even deeper glory when grace is applied to our lives and it starts to transform us. It starts to change us. We start to realize, I, I've been set free. I... I'm not feeling the burden that I used to feel. I'm not judging others the way I used to judge. I'm not being so hard on myself. I'm not taking criticism from others so hard. Because I know that whatever evaluation they have of me, if I've, if I've blown it, I've been forgiven by God. I know I'm okay with Him. And I'm not taking my cues from comparing myself with others, which is what the law was always about. And so, he says, without a veil, 
we're looking honestly and openly, and we look in that mirror at the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image. We're looking more like Him. We're looking more like His glory and His grace from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So he says, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you're allowing His grace to transform you, look in the mirror and you'll see the change. Look in the mirror and you'll see the transformation. Look at how grace has affected you. Look at how um, you are beginning to reflect grace. When you understand God's grace toward you, the obvious natural result of that is that you begin to be more gracious to others. You begin to show grace to other people. And so he says, look at that, and you'll see that it works. It helps to know how grace has changed you, because then you will trust God to allow grace to change others. If you really get grace, it does change you. It does transform you. There's a glory that comes out of your life as a result of that. And the more you see that, the more you trust it. And it's just, I love when I see someone's life starting to change because they understand the principle of grace. They understand the new covenant. And I, as a pastor, because there are so many people who are you know, involved here that I know, I just I can just think of person after person after person where <clears throat> when I first knew them or when I met them, they were just bound up by law. And I began to see God just setting them free and turning them loose. And it's um, probably the greatest joy of my life seeing that happen in people's lives, seeing grace work. And it's something that I know I've needed. It's something that I that I know that God has used it to take me from being a very, very, very ungracious person to where I'm moving in a direction of having more grace toward others. I, I still have a long ways to go, but I, but I see the changes. And when I see those changes in other people, and I've even been able to get, have a part in it, I get every week stories from people about how God is working in their life and bringing about changes and how they put something from God's word into practice, and wow, did it make a difference. And oh man, that's so amazing. And you feel such a connection with people who can share with you in the understanding of the, of the amazing grace of God. And so Paul was one who had been delivered from legalism and would never go back made the drive of his life to see other people set free, even as he had been set free. And that's a worthy goal for each of us, to reflect God's grace on others so that as we interact with them, they can be set free. That instead of adding more pressure to them from God, that we can let them know that God loves them and accepts them, forgives them, and has a plan for their life. And it's all good. They don't have to earn anything. They don't have to be anything. It's just God, and it's all about Him. That's, that's our primary calling in life for all of us, is to reflect the glory and the grace of God 
in a transforming way in the lives of others. And that's that fragrance that he talked about in the previous chapter that just soothes people. It just sets them free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace that saved all of us who have trusted in you. And Lord, many of us, even after we were saved, because of traditions, what we had been told, a veil that was over our eyes, we still felt like prisoners. Just seemed like we changed prison guard. But gradually, as you have revealed yourself to us, we feel our wings begin to spread. We feel the wind of your grace under our wings. and We discover that You really did want us to have an abundant life. You really aren't the one who put those burdens on us. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Thank you for your grace. Help us to comprehend it. Help us to share it and to reflect it in a glorious way. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Oh, if you see uh, Bill Cravenor at church, ask him where he was.